All right, 2 Kings chapter 12. Let's pray. We'll give you a little background to catch you up, and we'll dig into the Word of God. Let's pray. Chapter 13. Heavenly Father, we we thank you. We praise you. We love you. You are indeed a great and an awesome God. Lord, as we go to your Word right now, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. I thank you for everyone who's here, those watching on live stream, those that listen on the radio later. I just ask, Lord, that uh, you would meet us here. No one's here by chance, all by divine appointment. May your Holy Spirit speak. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So as we've been talking about in Kings, after King Solomon uh, failed miserably, we know that the kingdom was torn in two. The 10 northern uh, tribes were called Israel, and the two southern tribes were called Judah. And as we've been going through uh, 2 Kings especially, we're noticing that all the kings in the north have all been evil, one right after another. Uh, Jay, who had an opportunity to be uh, more solid, we'll talk about him a little bit tonight. But it, we saw Ahab and Jezebel and so many faithless kings and what their greatest failure was. They had many failures, but their greatest failure was falling into the trap of allowing the worship of other gods amongst God's people. They set up altars to false gods. And because of that, it says that they, would, they lost uh, the, the blessings of the Lord, and they had turned away from him. If you were here last week, we looked at chapter 12. I tell the message, well done, well done, thou good and faithful servant. We talked about how can we live a godly life that's pleasing to the Lord? Number one was giving ministry away, finishing what we start, give to the Lord with the right heart, walk by faith, don't operate in fear, and then finish strong. Now we're going to pick up tonight in chapter 13. And if you don't have an out, if you have your outline, grab it. Let's go through this quickly, and then we will dig into the text. Tell the message, whose footsteps are you following? We're going to see that the reason each king is evil is they follow example of the king that was before them, who was evil. And so they, they see an evil king, they do the exact same thing as the evil king, and they become, again, another evil king. Well, the same is true for us. We become like who we hang out with, and we follow somebody, you know, we follow somebody's example. There's somebody that we look up to. And usually it's our parents. So praise God if you have godly parents that are raising you in a godly home with the truth. And if you're not, you've got a godly heavenly father, amen. And you've got those that you can follow. But we're going to look at tonight's text. And here we're going to see it yet again that another king is going to rise up and another king is going to be evil. Actually, we're going to see a couple different kings in the north. So here's the each of the points. Point number one, what kind of example are you leaving for our children and grandchildren to follow? Lord, help us to live lives that would make others want to follow us. So what kind of life are you living? Let me just ask you this question. If, if everybody in the Conejo Valley lived the life you're living, would it be better or worse? Amen. If, if your children, do you want your children to grow up and live the life you're living? I would hope so. I would hope that we're living in such a way, I hope my kids love Jesus more than I do, but I would hope that I would live in such a way that my kids, if they followed my wife and I's life, if they followed the life and the way that we live and the way that we love the Lord and the way that we serve, uh, then it would be a wonderful thing. And so what kind of legacy are you leaving for your kids? And even if they're not your kids, but the other kids that see your example, we're going to see secondly that God suffers long, but he won't suffer our open rebellion forever. We're going to see often the children of Israel will be in rebellion and it will seem like they're getting away with it and they do for a period of time. And that's an example of God's grace. See, he desires that none should perish, no, not one. But God's grace is not God's permission to continue in sin. Amen? 
And so because of that, we have this example we're going to see tonight that there comes a point where God's had enough. There comes a point where he's given opportunity after opportunity for people to repent and to turn around. And eventually, because he's a righteous God, he must bring righteous judgment. Number three, it matters how we worship. We're going to see tonight that they are worshiping. The people in Israel are worshiping, but they're continuing to worship worship what Jehoram had set up all the way back in chapter 1. And what he had done, if you will remember, when the kingdom was split in half, what he did is he set up altars in Israel in the northern part, one in Bethel and, and one in Dan, and he set them up because he didn't want his people to go down to Jerusalem to worship the Lord, where God had commanded them to go to worship. And he set up these altars, and he said they were to Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But what he did is he put altars with golden calves on them. And so the people would go where it was convenient. And even though they were, quote, worshiping the right God, they were worshiping him in the wrong way. Amen? So it does matter how we worship. We're going to see that. Number four. We must be mindful, again, of whose example we follow. So not only the example that we leave, but whose example are you following? You hear me say this a lot. Who are you discipling and who's discipling you? Who are, who are you pouring into right now and who's pouring into you? And if the answer to both of those is nobody, go to the men's study, go to the women's study, get involved with the college group, get involved in a Bible study where you can be discipled and where you can disciple others. All of us need people that are more spiritually mature than us to pour into us. And all of us should be taking what God has shown us and pouring that into other people. Amen? So I want to encourage all of us that we need to be doing that. Number five, we have free will as to how much we want to participate in God's plan for our life. Is God sovereign? What's the answer? Is he in complete and total control? What's the answer? But don't we make a choice on how much we want to participate in God's plan. What's the answer to that? It's absolutely true. Here's a mistake we can make. And I hear this from some of my Reformed friends, including my, and again, if you have Reformed theology, we love you. God bless you. We're glad you're here. But here's the thing. I have a, my brother will always tell me, he's very Calvinist, and he'll go, hey, Dave, it doesn't matter what you do. You don't have to pastor that church. You can, you know, you can live wherever you want. You should move to Hawaii here with me. We can hang out. I'm like, bro, I'm called to that church. He goes, the same people are going to get saved whether you're there or not. The same thing's going to happen whether you're there or not. God already laid out the plan already. It doesn't matter what we do. And I'm like, and no wonder you're not sharing your faith with anybody. Amen? So here's what happens. We can fall into the trap of saying, well, because God is sovereign, I don't have to do anything. Now, God can do it all without us. He doesn't need us. We need him. But he chooses to use us. And I think there's nothing sadder than to have a saved soul in a wasted life. There's nothing sadder than to go to heaven by yourself, to not minister to anyone. And so we're going to see tonight, there's a choice that can be made and how much we choose to participate, how, how we take the gifts God's given us and use them for his glory and the choices that we make to follow the Lord. We'll then also see in number six, our God is a God of the miraculous. Does our God still perform miracles? What's the answer? And you know, we have not because we ask not. And we're going to see something pretty miraculous tonight. And we want to make sure that we don't worship the miracles. We worship the miracle maker. Amen? 
That we don't follow after, you know, somebody will see something happen and then they'll try to duplicate it. And I love how in the Bible, you know, he heals, I don't know how many blind men in scripture, multiple blind men, but he never heals in the same way twice. You know why? Because if he just put dirt in blind guy's eyes and that's how he healed and we put dirt in every blind person's eyes we ever met. Because we would think that was the, the key. And again, the key isn't the method, it's the one who has the power to heal and to him be all the glory. And then finally, if we're not all in, we're going to miss out on God's highest. Again, may we not have saved souls and wasted lives. So let's begin there in verse 1. Again, if you're new to Calvary, I tell you what I'm going to tell you, then I tell you, then I tell you what I told you, right? <laughs> so just so you know ahead of time, this we're going to look at. Repetition's good for us. Amen. There's four gospels for a reason. Okay, let's begin there in verse 1. It says, in the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, became king over Israel in Samaria and reigned 17 years. As you read through Kings, they will always tell you who's the king in Judah, if they're going to talk about the king in Israel, to give you a timeline. And they're going to talk about the king in Judah, they'll tell you who the king is in Israel to give you a timeline. So it's telling us at the time, again, when Joash is the king of Judah, Jehoahaz, is the king, and he's become the king because his father, Jehu, has died. So he is the new king. He's the king in Israel, and we are switching back and forth between the two kingdoms. And it was said to this of Jehu. Now, remember who Jehu was. Jehu was a, a man who was uh, a godly man, but he was not in the priestly line. He was not in the line to be king. But if you remember what happened, that one of the sons of the prophets was called by Elisha. God spoke to him and said, go find Jehu and anoint him. He's going to be the new king. And when he made Jehu the new king, one of the things he told him he needed to do was to go and kill both of the, the seeding kings and all their relatives. Guys, remember this? Now, why was this? Because they were all worshiping false gods. They were idol worshipers. God had given them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent. They were leading his people away from the truth. You know what? God desires that none should perish, no, not one. And he loves us all. But I'll tell you what he doesn't like. When people try to draw his kids away from the truth. Amen? When false prophets come in and try to turn his people away from the truth, God hates that. And he showed great restraint and he gave them many opportunities to repent. But eventually he came in and wiped out Jezebel and all the relatives of Ahab and Jehu took their place, their place as, as king in Israel. And he had an opportunity to turn it all around because he started off faithfully. But if you remember what it said at the end of the text, it said that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but he continued to have the altars to the false gods and it angered the Lord. So now this is Jehu's son. He has grown up with his father as king. He has seen how his father reigned. And he saw how his father had been faithful to what God commanded him to do. But he also saw that his father, in one area, he failed miserably. And that's where he allowed the altars to remain. Boy, I miss Elijah. Amen? Elijah came in, and what did he do? 
He got he kicked down all the idols. He went in and challenged the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. He mocked the God that doesn't exist, the God Baal, the false idols. And we need more people that, again, we need to be loving. We need to be kind. We need to be gracious. We're one beggar leading another beggar to the bread. But we must never stand by and act like lies are true or anything that turns people away from the true and living God. I got into a, I don't even know how I connected with this guy, but there's a guy very high up in the Mormon church who somehow started interacting with me. And we, we went back and forth. And he, and, he said, and he told me, here's a direct quote, we believe in Jesus just like you do. We believe in God the Father just like you do. We believe that he died on the cross. We believe that he rose from the dead. We believe, and it all sounds good. All those things sound like they agree until you say, God the Father, is he always been? Is he the, all know, is he the only God? Or is there, oh, well, no, he was a man on another planet who was so good he got to be God of our planet. Oh, okay. Okay, Jesus, is he the creator of all that? Well, no, he, you know, if you talk to him, you have to confront him. He's the brother of Satan. That's Mormon doctrine. And they had to decide who was going to be the savior of this world. And now they believe they can be God of their own planet. And here's the problem. And he said, well, why can't you just, why can't we just get along? I said, because you preach a false gospel and you're dragging people to hell and you're contradicting the truth of God's word. And you need to repent, bro. We are not brothers. We are on the opposite side because you are denying the Jesus of the Bible. Amen. Now, and I said, bro, look, I love you. and I'm going to pray for you. But I'm not going to say God bless you because I hope God curses what you're doing. I don't want him to bless any of it. Amen? Because, see, God's heart is broken when, you know, Satan peers as an angel of light. He's not going to show up at your doorstep with a pitchfork and horns growing out of his head and say, follow me to hell. Nobody will buy that. So instead, they come with little name tags on bicycles, right? And the reality is they come and they want to draw you away from the truth. Well, here's the sad part. He's the king now. We got a new king in Israel. He saw what his father did. He has an opportunity to tear the idol, the altars down. He has an opportunity to tear down all the, the false gods and to get the focus back on the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We must never forget that the children of Israel, these are the descendants of the ones who got to see the Red Sea part. Their, their ancestors were the ones that heard God speak from Mount Sinai. Their ancestors were the ones who after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, walked in to the land of promise and, and defeated the giants and saw a mighty hand of God at work. Guys, it's only one or two generations away where we can get our eyes off of Jesus and start focusing on something else. The Lord said to Jehu, because you've done well in doing what is right in my sight and have done to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart, your son shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. Jehu was anointed king by one of the sons of the prophets back in 2 Kings 9, and Jehu was giving clear marching orders that he was to strike down the house of Ahab, your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants and the prophets and the blood of all the servants and the, uh, the, uh, that died at the hand of Jezebel. So he was a tool in the hands of the Lord. There's no question. Jehu was being used by God, but Jehu had one area where he failed. Ahab and Jezebel seemed to get away with their evil behavior, but no one will escape the righteous judgment of God. God suffers long, but he won't suffer always. It says in 2 Kings 10, 31, but Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart, for he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, 
who had made Israel sin. So Jeroboam is the one who had raised up these false altars. By the way, if we ever get to go back to Israel again, which I would love to do, I love Israel. Uh, I love what a guy told us there, one of our guides, his name's Amir. He was on the prophecy thing the other day. He was our guide one year and he said, hey, you know, you can pray from anywhere, but from here it's a local call. <laughs> and so I love Israel because you get to see where Jesus walked. And again, the Bible's already alive. It doesn't have to be made alive, but it is amazing how you see the word of God. And Pastor Chuck used to say, 10 days in Israel is worth a year of Bible college. And I agree with that. But when you go, do you know that the one in Dan that's altar is still there? The ruins of it are still there. It's pretty amazing. You go to the exact spot where it was and where they were worshiping these golden calves and false gods. So verse two, and it says here, so here's the new king. He's the son of Jehu. He has an opportunity with each new king. He has an opportunity to do what is right. Verse two, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. So as all the other kings of the northern king before him, Jeroboam was the man who divided the nation. And again, he is the one who set up worship to false gods. You know why he set it up? He didn't want his people to go down to Jerusalem to worship because he was afraid they might not come back. Because that was another nation. He was afraid if they all went down there and worshiped. So what he did instead was made it easy for them to worship and be careful. And again, Convenience to some degree is okay, but we better not let convenience keep us where, from where God calls us to be. Yes. Amen? Yes. Forsake not the gathering yourselves together and all the more as the day approaches. Let's not let the convenience of staying home and watching on live stream keep us from coming. If you're sick or you're, you know, you're struggling with your health or whatever it might be and you're staying home or you live far away, God bless. We have people from Kentucky and Hawaii and all these places, Indiana, the Watch Weekly, and we're glad. You know, it's a little bit of a drive for them to come. But for those of us who are here, it's better to be in fellowship. So it was false worship, again, of a true God in a sense. They said it was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it was idolatry. So point number one, what kind of example are we leaving for our children and grandchildren to follow? What has this new king done? All he's done is the same thing his dad did. He saw what his dad did, and he did exactly the same thing. I mean, this is gonna date people. There was a commercial, this has gotta be in the 70s probably, um, and it was a commercial, and they show a little kid, and he's walking behind his dad, and his dad picks up a rock and throws it, and the kid picks up a rock and throws it. And his dad's walking along, and he kicks a, kicks a can on the thing, and he kicks a can, and then he walks by, and he jumps in a swing, he jumps in a swing, and then his dad picks up a cigarette, starts smoking, and the kid picks up something off the ground and pretends to smoke. And the whole point of the commercial was, what kind of example are you giving your kids? Well, you know what? That's applicable to us. And we see here that that example was followed because, well, if my dad did it, I admire my dad. My dad was a king. I'm a king. So I must just follow in his footsteps. Guys, you know what? There's a king we want to follow. He's the king of kings. We want to follow him. We want to obey him. We want to honor him. Point number two, God suffers long, but he won't suffer our open rebellion forever. And notice what it says here. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he delivered them into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, all their days. Well, God made a promise to Jehu, his descendants, for their faithfulness and bringing judgment upon Ahab. He now just said, you're going to have people in your family for four generations as king. So it would be 
Jehu, then his son, grandson, then his grandson, and then his great-grandson. All of them would be king. That was God made that promise. But he didn't promise that their kingdom would be fruitful. Because if they disobeyed God, even though God had blessed them, even though God had said, because you, you've honored me, I'm going to allow you to be king. But he didn't say, if you disobey and you rebel, that it's going to be fruitful. Here's the application for us as believers. If you've been born again, you're going to heaven. Amen? You have the promise of eternal life. You've been filled with the Holy Spirit. Your name's written in the Lamb's book of life. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And again, you're going to close your eyes on earth and open them up in glory and praise God. And you know what? If you've truly been born again, if you've truly surrendered your life to the Lord, if you've repented of your sin and surrendered to him, you have that promise. But as a born-again believer, if you live a life of open rebellion, sin has consequences. And the way of the transgressor is hard, the Bible says. So we can be born again, but we may have times where we live in open rebellion against the word of God. Back in the 70s, again, we used to call that backsliding. You're a backslider. You're sliding backwards. And you know, the truth is we don't want to be the, the kind of person who has a relationship with the Lord. You know, we, we have that three hour a week or one and a half hour a week relationship with God. But you know what? The Bible tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And we need to be in fellowship. So the anger of the Lord was aroused against them. He had promised his descendants would be because of the faithfulness would be kings. But the Lord was also angry because of the fact that they allowed the idolatry to continue. When we walk in open obedience against God and his word, he will often leave us to ourselves. In a sense, it's almost like the protection is gone. Okay, you want... You want to go out, go do that? All right, well, it's on you. You know, God still loves us. We're still going to heaven. And he's not surprised by it because he's sovereign. But at the same time, we cannot live in open rebellion against God and expect God to bless it. Obedience or rebellion, choose one. Fellowship with God or rebellion, choose one. You cannot walk in open rebellion against God's word and walk in fellowship with God at the same time. Amen? So his heart is broken. The anger of the Lord was aroused. By the way, if God's mad at you, that's not good. You, you don't want that. You don't want that. You know, there's, there's certain people who are mad at me. I'm okay with it. Not, not God. I don't want God mad at me. Yes, sir. Yes, Lord. Your servant hears. What do you need me to do? Jeroboam rebelled against Rehoboam back in 931. And 117 years following, these golden calves are still there. They've been there for 117 years. No king has taken them down for 117 years. And you know what? We need to be careful in our culture that we haven't allowed certain things to become okay in the church. Amen? Just because they were there, just because they've been there, just because they've always been there, and we start to act like it's no big deal. You know what? Sin's a big deal to God. We need to love God and hate sin and make no excuses for it. God will use a paddle on us every once in a while. I call it the Holy Spirit head slap. Amen. He, those who the Lord loves, he disciplines. It says in 2 Peter, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, that all should be, come to repentance. But then he says this in Exodus, and he passed in from Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. So he's not quick to anger. Aren't you glad God's not quick to be angry with you? 
If God was quick to be angry with me, I'd have been toast a long time ago. So I'm thankful for his grace. But we cannot, and this would happen, the church I got pastor in Santa Cruz, you know, got very large. And there was one woman that she eventually left the church. She would chastise me every time I talked about judgment at all. You just need to talk about the love of God. That's all. Just, just, we, just need, we just need love. We just need love. We just need love. He's the definition of love. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, kind. Amen? That being said, he's also holy. Amen? You can't teach only the love part and not teach the holiness part. And you also should not teach only the holiness part and not the love part. Amen? Because both of them are equally true. Because that's who our Savior is. And so he does suffer long. God is patient. He's patient with us. He wants to give us an opportunity to turn around. You probably, there's times when I have to confess that there's some people I think, Lord, why are you giving this guy so much slack? Uh, you, know, you know, look, we got people in this world that are so evil. And you're like, Lord, if I was God, I'd have smoked that guy a long time ago. But I'm not God. <laughs> Praise the Lord for that. But I'm also glad that he shows me the same grace he's showing that person. Amen? But God suffers long, but he won't suffer always. Notice what it says in verse 4. So Jehoahaz pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord listened to him. And he saw the oppression of Israel because the king of Syria oppressed them. So here's how God brought judgment. He allowed their neighboring nation to take them captive. So here, when God is for them, you know, when God is for David, what happens to Goliath? You know, you plus God is a majority. If God is for us, who can be against us? But if we're living contrary to the word of God and we're not walking in faithfulness to the Lord, we can't expect him to be for us when we're going through the trials of life. And so here they are, and God allows the enemy to run over the top of them. And what does it do? It gets this king on his knees. And it's amazing how... So that will be the motivation to get people to pray more often than anything else. When you get to a place where you have no other answers, you have no other hope, well, I guess I'll try to pray then. And guys, God should not be the last resort. He ought to be the first stop. Amen? Pray without ceasing, for this is the will of God. And so sadly, what happens is it's, they get run over. He's the king. The Syrians from the north have come down and run over the top of them. And now they're in bondage to them. Now they've been taken captive to a certain degree. So he drops to his knees and he cries out to the Lord. And what's amazing about this is God already knows what he's going to do after he answers his prayer, but he's going to answer it anyway. He's going to show him grace. He's going to allow Israel to have a victory, even though he already knows as soon as they are no longer in bondage, they're going to go right back to the life they were living before. How many of you guys were here when we went through Judges? We went through judges at least, at least, I don't know how many times. Here's what happens. And here's what's happening here. Children of Israel are walking with God. Everything's wonderful. Their lives are fruitful. It's a blessing. And then they turn away from the Lord. They start chasing after the things of the world. God judges them. Often he allows a foreign nation to overrun them. They cry out to God. God restores them. They start walking with the Lord again. Their lives are fruitful for a period of time. Then they turn their backs on God again. And then God runs them over with their enemies again. Then they cry out to God again. And then he restores them. And you know what? We look at that and we think, what a bunch of knuckleheads. But that can, can sound like my week sometimes. <laughs> Am I the only one? 
where you, you sin and you're like, what, what's wrong with me? Why am I, Lord, forgive me. And the Lord, Lord forgives you and then, you know, you get angry again or whatever that thing is you're struggling with. And so we see that in Judges, they do it over and over and over and over and over. And here we see them doing the same thing again. And he's a God of love and grace and mercy, but we must never take his grace for granted. So he cries out to the Lord. Again, at the end of himself, uh, that's actually a great place to be, by the way. It's usually what draw, draws us to the Lord. By the way, too, have you ever noticed how the people that make fun of your faith, like your coworkers or neighbors or whatever, and they want nothing to do with it until they're in a real desperate situation? I, I taught a Bible, you know, most of you guys know I have a full-time job. I taught a Bible studies at, at all the, you know, at work, different offices I've been in. And they would make fun of me and talk. And, but at the same time, their, their husband gets diagnosed with cancer. And they're over at your cubicle going, hey, uh, can I talk to you for a second? Of course. C could you pray for me? Could you pray for my husband? And it's a pleasure to do it. It's an opportunity for the gospel. But see, too often, the people who don't have a relationship with the Lord are fine until something difficult happens, and then they want to know, who do I know that prays? And hopefully, everybody you know knows that you pray. Amen? Because that's where the opportunities are going to take place. That's where we're going to have an opportunity to share the hope that lies within us. So here's what happened. At the king, he's in a desperate situation. He drops to his knees. Look at verse 5. Then the Lord gave Israel a deliverer. He doesn't even tell us who it is. God sent a deliverer. And that's what he would do. When they would fall uh, in judges, he would bring them a new judge who would restore them back to the Lord and then after that judge died, they would go back to evil again. Well, here's what happens. It says they sent a deliverer so that they escaped from under the hand of the Syrians and the children of Israel dwelt in tents as before. So they were in a desperate situation. They cried out to God. God sends them a deliverer. It doesn't even give us any detail. It doesn't tell us who it is necessarily. Um, there are some ancient writings that have some ideas who they think it might have been. It could have been Joash, King Jehoah's son. It could have been his grandson. Others think it might have been an Assyrian king, but there's nothing that we know for sure. He's anonymous in the world, but he was used mildly by God. Isn't it good to know that you can be anonymous to the world, but still be used mildly by God? The whole world may not know anything about it. I think when we get to heaven, if there was such a thing as a line in heaven to hand out crowns, I think some of the people up in the front would be people we have no idea because they're just faithfully praying in their prayer closet. They're faithfully serving when nobody's watching and praise the Lord for people like that. So what happens is God blesses them. He answered their prayer. Hey, this is an opportunity now maybe that he's got his nation back. Maybe he'll go back and tear down the, the altars now. Hey, maybe he'll get right with the Lord again, and maybe he'll turn the people back to the true and living God. Verse 6, nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, who made Israel sin, but they walked in them, and the wooden image also remained in Samaria. There was a wooden image to the Babylon and Canaanite goddess Asheroth. Asheroth was, uh, you know, a foul goddess of Immoral, sexual immorality. There was Baal worship. We know all the prophets of Baal had already been wiped out. So here they, have, they still have wooden idols, and they still continue to have the golden calves on altars in place of the true worship of the true and living God. So even after God shows up, even after God does a great work, they still don't truly repent. 
I've shared this story before. One of my coworkers, this is way back in the early 80s, or late 80s and early 90s. We worked together in Seattle. I helped him get a job where I work now. And I've never had anybody more adamant and angry that he did not want to hear anything about God. I would start to talk, and I'm not exaggerating. He would cover up his ears and go, la, 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 la. Dude, relax. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. He would just start. Ah, ah, ah. Dave, you're my buddy. But ah, ah, ah. I said, well, we probably won't be buddies long because I'm not going to stop. <laughs> and so I try to talk to him about the Lord. Ah, ah. So one day I'm in the office and he's sitting in his cubicle. And this guy's a stoic guy. And he's got tears running down his face. And I go, I go Mark, are you okay, bro? He's like, yeah, you know, I just got a call from England. My dad's got cancer and they're giving him like a month to live. I'm trying to book a plane to get back there and, you know, and I'm, man, I'm just, I'm heartbroken. He's not that old. And if he dies in a month, he'll never meet my kids. You know, his wife was pregnant at the time. And he, he was just heartbroken. And I said, hey, Mark, I'd love to pray for your dad. First time ever. Okay. So we went in the conference room, prayed for his dad. And I said, I'm gonna, here's the deal, Mark. I'm going to pray for him every day. But if God chooses to heal him, all I'm going to ask you to do is give credit where credit's due. If he heals my dad, I'll believe. I'll believe if he heals my dad. We went on a company sales awards trip. We're playing golf together. I was standing in the tee box. And I don't, didn't hear an audible voice, but I felt the Lord tell me, tell him I'm going to heal his dad. <laughs> because if you're wrong, right? God told me he's going to heal your dad. And then he died. Oh, you know, right? So I was, you know, I, I was, I wimped out. I didn't tell him. Two weeks later, I go into the office. Mark runs up to me, bro, you're not going to believe this. My dad's cancer is gone. I said, who healed him? Who healed him, bro? Well, yeah, we're not sure. You know, the doctor's good. All of a sudden that whole, you know, it's like the drowning atheist, right? You, you, you pray to God until you get to the shore and then you forget what you promised. And see, this is the tragic part. God showed up. God rescued them. God delivered them from the enemy. And what did they do? They went back and did the exact same thing they were already doing that caused God to get angry and put them into captivity to begin with. It's tragic. It's sad. I pray that we would learn from the, the ways that we follow. See, it does matter to God how we worship. It's not just, well, I believe in I I worship. I'm spiritual. I'm really spiritual. I just really, I just worship in my own way. Well, your own way is no way because Jesus is the only way. Amen. Well, I just worship in my own way. I, I you know, I, I really like to worship uh, at the beach. It's just my, it's my chapel. It's just the place I go. I go out there and surf for the day and I'm just, I'm, 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 I'm communing with Jesus. I'm communing. They don't say Jesus. I'm communing with God. Guys, no. The waves did not die on the cross for you. Your golf clubs did not die on the cross for you. NASCAR did not die on the cross for you. The NFL did not die on the cross for you. Antiquing did not die on the cross for you. Amen. Jesus alone died on the cross for you, and there's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. And it's only his name, and it's only his name we praise, and only he died on the cross, and only he rose from the dead, and he alone is the true and living God. Instead of taking God's gracious answer to their prayers and transforming their lives, they didn't change their ways. They continued on in their behavior, and sadly, consequences are 
coming. You know, we need to be careful that when we worship, that we do worship. The Bible says we need to worship in spirit and in truth, right? So we worship in spirit and in truth. That means we're fully surrendered to the Lord when we worship. We're worshiping in the power of the Holy Spirit. We're worshiping the truth of what the Word of God teaches. That's how we worship. But sometimes we don't worship in spirit and in truth. Sometimes we worship in the flesh and in fall and something that's false. Even as Christians, we need to be careful. Sometimes we just, it just becomes mundane and we're not really fully connected to the Lord. We're not really entering into his presence. We're not really surrendering to the Lord. We just come in and sing the songs of the same songs we've sang before. And you know, we, and we're just kind of here, but we're not fully engaging with the Lord. Guys, he died on the cross for us. Does he deserve for us to fully engage? May we fully engage with the Lord, not be satisfied again with saved souls and wasted lives. Taking grace for granted when God gives you a chance to change, take it. Just because the pressure is off doesn't mean God isn't serious anymore about your sin. It says in Galatians, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh, the, he will, the flesh will reap corruption. But he who sows to the spirit of the spirit will reap everlasting life. Verse seven, for he left the army of Jehoaz, only 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, 10,000 foot soldiers for the king of, of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust of, at threshing. See, when they were walking with the Lord and God was with them, do you remember how, how mighty their army was? Do you remember how they had literally, their, their army's one-tenth of what it was. And why is that? Because they had been trusting in themselves. They were not walking with the Lord. So the Lord allowed them to go their own way. And going their own way, they were defeated soundly. Guys, if you try to live this life without the empowering work of the Holy Spirit, you are going to fail miserably. Amen? I'm going to try harder. I'm just going to do better, said everybody in the room and failed. Amen? I'm, gonna, I'm not going to ever do that again. I'll never talk that way again. I'll never watch that again. I'll never look at that again. I'll never talk that way to my spouse again. I'll never do that again. And then we do it. Because without him, we can do nothing. Let me just say this to all of us. Tell me one good thing you've done in your life without the Lord's help. There aren't any. Amen? Because see, any good in us is him. If we're convicted to do something, it's the Holy Spirit. Without him, we can do nothing. So guys, to him be all the praise and the glory for any good that we do, and we need to make sure we recognize that the good that's being done is because of him, not because of us. It's in spite of us, amen? So here they are. They only have 50 horsemen and 10 chariots, a shell of them former selves. They lack, uh, their lack of true worship and intimate fellowship with God made them weak. Let me say that again. Their lack of true worship and intimate fellowship with God made them weak. You know how your walk's going to be weak? If you lack intimate fellowship and true worship with God. If you're not worshiping the Lord and you're not walking in intimate fellowship with God, your walk with the Lord will be weak because you cannot do it on your own. I just want more Jesus. How about you? Jesus said of men born among women, there's none greater than who? John the Baptist. And then he said of John the Baptist, John the Baptist said, I must decrease 
that he might increase. So the best man who ever lived according to Jesus said, there's got to be less of me and more of him. So that's true of the best man who ever lived. It's certainly true of all of us. Amen? Not a whole lot of fired up people about this message. Okay, verse, point number three. It matters how we worship, verse 6 and 7 and verse 8. Now, the rest of the acts of Jehoaz, all that he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoaz rested with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. Then Joash's son reigned in his place. Okay, so this king dies. He has failed. He has continued to worship to the false gods. Now his son takes over. Gee, I wonder what his son's going to do. I wonder if he's going to change and again, I, I want to say this. People ask me all the time, Pastor Dave, do you believe in generational curses? You ever heard people ask you that? Do you believe in generational curses? Here's, how I, here's my answer. If God involved, no. No. Now, can behavior of parents impact kids? What's the answer? Without question. Can God redeem that? Can God change that? Can God break that? Amen? Well, my, I'm an alcoholic because my parents were alcoholics. Well, okay, there might be a tendency, but can God deliver you from that? course. So whatever that thing is, well, you know, my dad had an anger problem, so I have an anger problem. My dad left the altars to the false gods, so I'm going to leave the altars to the false god. Look what it says here. We must be mindful of whose example we follow. It says, in 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, became king over, is, uh, king over Israel and Samaria and reigned 16 years. Okay, new king, new opportunity to repent. New opportunity to get right with God. Verse 11. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, but walked in them. Boy, we're just seeing king after king after king after king doing what the last king did. And what's amazing about that is they see what happens to each of these kings. They see what happened to dad. We got run over by the Syrians. They saw what happened to grandpa. Ahab ran us over. And they see, you know, we, and we had trouble with the Syrians. And they keep seeing the problem, but then they keep repeating it. You know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. These guys are insane. They're continuing to do what is contrary to what the word of God commands. And somehow they think it's going to be okay. It is so tragic to see the example that was lived out in front of them. And we just need one king to come along and change it. We just need one to come along and say, we're not doing that anymore. We're taking all that stuff down. We're going to stand for the true and living God. We're getting rid of all the idols. We need another Elijah to come along, who was a prophet but not a king, that says there, all we have to say about this guy, there it is. And it says, now the rest of the acts of Joash, all that he did, and his might, which... He fought against Amaziah, king of Judah. Are they not written in the book of Chronicles, the king of Israel? So Joash rested with his fathers. Then Jeroboam sat on his throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. So this guy's whole, now we're going to see more about him in Chronicles. But right here, all we see about him is four verses. His dad died. He did the same thing his dad did, and he died. My prayer is for us. I pray, here's, I truly pray this. I pray that all Four of my kids and all five of my grandkids so far love Jesus more than I do. I pray that they are more on fire for God than I am. I pray that God uses them more mightily than I've ever been used in my life. I want the next generation to love Jesus more than I do. And that should be our heart. Amen? 
And here's another thing, Christians, here's a pet peeve. Don't do this with me. Don't do it, please. I don't get angry very easy. How, you, know, you ask someone, how are your kids doing? Oh, they're doing great. Got a promotion at work, doing this, doing that, doing that. How's his walk with the Lord? Oh, he's totally walked away from God. He's in total rebellion against God. He wants nothing to do with God. He's shacking up with his girlfriend and he's, you know, he's getting drunk all the time. But he's doing great because he's got a, got a promotion at work. No, he's not doing great. If my kids are digging ditches and loving Jesus, I'm going to be the most happy person on the planet. Nothing wrong with having a good job, nothing wrong with working hard, but your identity is in Christ before it is what you do for a living. And sadly, as men, we all know this as men especially, what's the first thing you hear when you meet, what do you do for a living? What do you do for a living? I'd love to ask you that. And they'll determine your worth somehow that way. Again, if we're, working for, if we're doing it for the Lord, whatever we do, God will honor it, amen? So here this guy is, four verses we must be mindful who is example we follow. Number five, we have free will to do as much as we want to participate in God's plan for our lives. Look at verse 14. Here comes Elisha. We haven't seen him for a while. He's been mentioned often, you know, he's the one that sent uh, one of the sons of the prophets to go and anoint Jehu king. And now we get to talk a little bit about our brother Elisha. It says, Elisha had become sick with an illness of which he would die. Now, I've had people in this fellowship here that have told me that if you have enough faith, you'll never get sick. And I have to let people know that's not true. And how do I know that's not true? The Apostle Paul, do you think that brother had a little faith? He had thorns in his flesh. He cried up to the Lord and the Lord chose to never heal him. Let me ask you a question. Show me somebody in the Bible, use mightily. I'll show you somebody who suffered greatly. Did they suffer because they didn't have faith or did God allow them to suffer so they might grow in their faith? Amen? A faith that hasn't been tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. And people will read this and they'll go, well, I'm sure Elisha might've been wondering if he was gonna get a chariot. Remember Elijah? Did Elijah die? He got carried away in a fiery chariot. Elisha might have thought, wait for my chariot. Maybe I'll get a bigger one. I've been around longer. <laughs> you know what I mean? And he might have thought, but isn't it amazing? We know that Elisha, we've been following his life. He has, God has used him to heal people. Now God healed him, but he was the tool. Haven't we seen him do that? Haven't we seen him even go and raise people? I mean, here's this guy that, can, that God uses to heal other people, but he can't heal himself. He's going to die. Now, as believers, we need to recognize that death has no sting. That to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We don't die. We just move to a much better neighborhood. We just graduate. Amen? I want to tell my wife, just put, a, a, you know, put one of those little graduation things in a tassel on me. <laughs> and, throw me and throw me in a U-Haul box because it's just moving day. Amen? And the reality is that as believers, you know, we're here just a vapor of time and what really matters is up there. And this is not our home. Heaven's our home. But too often people, you know, one of them finally left. Pastor Dave, you should not even talk about that. It's negative confession. Oh, stop that. Quit listening to Benny Hinn. Stop it. And read your Bible. Can I get an amen to that? What does the Bible say? I don't want negative confession. Stop it. Notice what it says here. He was sick. Then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face and said, oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. Here's what he's saying. He comes, 
he finds out, now this king is not walking with the Lord as far as honoring God, but he recognizes what a blessing Elisha is. See, even, I pray that we live lives in such a way that even the people that don't know God consider us a blessing because of the life that we live. Amen? I had a neighbor, uh, not here, but in my, and he would come over and he'd tell me once in a while, I'd go, you know, Dave, I'm never going to be a Christian like you, but I'm really glad you're my neighbor, bro. Because I know you ain't going to steal from me, and I know, you're, I know you're looking out for me, and you're probably praying for me, and you're probably praying for my kids, and I know I can trust you in my life, you know? And the reality is, I pray that we live in such a way that it would be a blessing to others. So here's, Elisha is such a godly man that the king who is in rebellion and doing evil in the sight of God, when he hears that Elisha is dying, he runs to Elisha and he's weeping and he falls on his face. And then he says this, let me repeat it. He says, oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. In the Jewish paraphrase of this, it's my master, my master, who has been better to Israel by his prayers than chariots and horsemen. What he's saying is, your prayers and your relationship with God do more to protect our country and to allow us to grow and to allow us to have victory than all the horses and, and chariots on the planet. You know, the Bible says that some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. You know what that means in today's vernacular? Jesus is better than nuclear weapons. Jesus is better than the Star Wars project. Jesus is better than any defense mechanism. Praise God. I think, hey, I'm, I'm pro-military and praise God for the military. Amen. That being said, my hope is in Jesus before anything else. He's in control. He's a faithful God. This is exactly what Elisha said to Elijah when he got caught up into the sky. So an ungodly king yet had great reverence for Elisha. And again, what's going to happen here? What's going to be the response from Elisha and the defense of Israel? What's he going to say? And look what happens. Elisha said to him, take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. Now, what I love about this too is that Elisha is going to die. Elisha is very ill. Elisha is a man who has been confronted by wicked leaders. He spoke the truth with boldness. He was used by God on occasion to heal others, but he was allowed to be sick. And God allows that in our lives because sometimes he calms the storm. Sometimes he calms the child. Sometimes it's better. You know, we learn more. You know, I think the more spiritually mature person is the one who remains faithful in the trial than the one who gets delivered from it. Amen? And that's where you grow the most. So, but Elisha, I love this. He's coming to the end of his life but he's still going to minister to this king. And I believe as believers that as long as we're breathing in and out, God's not done with us, amen? As long as we're still here, we, we don't retire. Christians don't retire. We continue to be salt and light. We continue to look to be used for his kingdom and for his glory. So then he says to verse 16, then he said to the king of Israel, so he said, get a bow and some arrows. He goes and gets them. He said to the king of Israel, put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on it. And Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. Here's what he does. He's talking to him. He's in the quarters of Elisha, no doubt. Elisha is very ill. Elisha's coming to the end of his life. The king comes in and he throws himself down before him. He's weeping because he recognizes that Elisha's dying. And we don't even see a clear replacement for him anywhere in scripture yet. 
So he knows this is a mighty man of God. This is a man that God uses. This is a man we want on our side because if he's on our side, God's on our side. He's in terror. He's already seen what has happened, how the enemies have been overrunning them. And so what does he tell him to do? Go get a bow and arrow. What? Grab a bow and some arrows. Okay. And I just picture the scene. When I read the Bible and I study it, by the way, I get these chapters for 30 hours. You get it for an hour. So when I'm really digging into it, I kind of look at everybody's perspective. And I just imagine Elisha, maybe bedridden even, right? He's sick. He's this older man. I imagine him getting up and his hands kind of shaking. And he goes up to the king and he tells the king, take that arrow and I want you to point it out the window. I want you to pull the bow back. And it says in the text there that he goes up and grabs the bow with, with the king, puts his hand on his hand, and he helps him pull it back. And I can imagine why the king might be thinking, why is this happening? And I think it's a picture of the fact that, look, what I'm about to show you, what I'm about to teach you is you need to know that God's got his hand on you, that God is with you. So he takes the bow and he's going to shoot it out the window. Now, we know from just the culture itself and from ancient writings that often what they would do when they declared war against another nation, they would go to the window and they would either throw out a spear or they would shoot an arrow in the direction of their enemy and it was their way of declaring war. So he's helping him declare war on the enemies, the enemies of God, and he's letting them know that God is going to go before you if you will trust him. So as he's doing this in his last moments here, he puts his hands on his hands. And then he says in verse 17, open the east window. And he opened it. Again, east is the direction of Syria. So Syria is directly to the east. He's going to take this bow and he's going to shoot it in the direction of the enemy. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria you must strike the Syrians at Aphek till you have destroyed them. So here he's getting counsel, final counsel. Elisha's been one to help the children of Israel. He's been one to lead them. He's been one to give them spiritual counsel. Now he's dying. This is kind of his final, some of his final advice to this king. And he's letting them know that God has called you to go out into battle and to fight the war. Many of you have heard me say it before, Christianity is not a cruise ship to heaven, it's a battleship anchored at the gates of hell. And the reality is we go out into a spiritual battle every day, and the only way we can have victory is if we walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So here we see fragile Elijah exhorting this young king and encouraging him that God's hand is upon him. Now, if Joash hasn't got a clue yet, it's pretty apparent that the things Elijah is doing with him is again to point to the fact that God has a plan and God is going to give him strength to defeat his enemy. He's showing, Elisha's showing the king that the Lord's strength and the Lord's deliverance is with him. What he's saying is I'm leaving, but God's not. Isn't it good to know that no matter who dies before us, that God's still here? There are people that we love. There are people that we admire. Hey, it's been a hard few years for me. My mom and dad both went to heaven and my mom and dad are two of the most godly people I've ever met. And I still, I was driving between appointments yesterday and I still thought about picking up the phone and calling my parents. So it's still kind of there. But I know they're in heaven and I know, you know, they're doing way better than we are. And I know I'm gonna see them again, but it's kind of odd that now I'm the patriarch of my family. Now I'm the one that all my brothers and sisters and nieces and nephews and cousins and everybody calls because they can't call my dad anymore. 
And you realize, wow. And, and so there's a heart, you know, there's a part of you that when they leave, you feel like things just are never going to be the same. And to some degree, that's true. But guess what? God's still here. And the same Holy Spirit that indwelled my parents indwells me and indwells others who, who counsel. Amen? My nephew Jackson, he called me up one day and actually I went up to visit and, and he's, he, he's 22 years old. He just graduated from college and he sat down next to me in tears and he said, you know, he goes, Uncle Dave, I, I, I was so heartbroken because I keep thinking I could never talk to grandpa anymore. And then he starts weeping and he's shuddering. He said, but you know what? You're here and I can talk to you. And, and you know what? You got the same Holy Spirit grandpa. I said, Amen. And it's so true, guys. But here's, here's the, the reality. He's encouraging him. Yes, I'm going away, but I want you to know God is for you. If you will obey him, God will bless you. So good to know. Notice what it says, verse 18. Then he, took and he, then he said, take the arrows. So he took them and he said to them, strike the ground. So he struck three times and stopped. Now, let me give you a little, again, you need some help here. We've got about 11 minutes left, so we've got to get through this. But here's what happens. The word strike the ground can mean one of two things in Hebrew. It can mean either to strike it, like take the arrows and strike them on the ground, but it also can mean to shoot them so they land on the ground. And I believe that's the better interpretation when you look at the original language. And so what he's saying to them, he has a quiver full of arrows. And he says, I want you to grab these arrows and I want you to shoot them out the window so that they hit the ground. And we're going to see what he does. So what he does is he takes three arrows and he shoots three arrows out the window and then he stops. Now he's got a quiver full of arrows. I don't know how many it is. It could be eight, 10, 12, 50. I don't know what the number is of arrows, but it's a lot more than three. We know that. But he shoots three out the window and he kind of goes, that's good enough. Now, what's the application for us? When God calls us to do something, we don't do it halfway. Amen. He shoots out three arrows, that's enough. He might have, might have shot two, and the king might have, I mean, Elisha might have been looking at him like, bro. And so he wanted me to do another one. And finally, he goes, I'm done. I'm not doing it anymore. I'm out. Now, what's amazing about this, we're going to see the clear uh, application to it. Look what it says in verse 19. And the man of God was angry with him. You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria until you destroyed it but now you will strike Syria only three times. Here's what's amazing. God told him through Elisha that you're going to defeat the enemy. God told him here, we're going to declare a war. You need to know that God's hand is upon you. I may not be here, but God is for you. And then he told him to take the arrows and to strike them to the ground, whether it was striking them to the ground or shooting them out the window. So guess what? He only does three of the arrows. It's a small number. He doesn't finish what God's you asking him to do through his prophet. And what happens? He tells him, but now you will strike Syria only three times. God is in control, but God still wants us to participate. Amen? So here he is. He only shoots a, a small percentage of the arrows out the window. It may not seem like a big deal. But again, the prophet had told him, here's the arrows. Strike them to the ground. Shoot them out the window. And he does three of them, and he stops. Sometimes we're that way with the Lord. God has a calling upon our life, and we don't, we don't go for it for God the way we go for it for other things in life. When I was a young man, you'll never know looking at me now, but when I was young, I was a competitive bodybuilder and a competitive weightlifter, and I used to, I used to schedule my whole life around the gym. 
Oh, I can't take English 1A. At, uh, that's, during, that's chest day. I can't do that. Right? You know what I mean? And literally, I would schedule my life around working out, and, and I, do, I did bench press contests, and then you know, I played college football. And, and again, I love Jesus, but I love that stuff too much. I was nowhere near as gung-ho for sharing my faith as I was lifting weights. Lifting weights was way too important to me. God allowed me to get some injuries, put a stop to that. But here's the reality, though. The same can be true for us. By the way, I'm just going to shoot straight because you guys are my family and I love you. If you talk more about politics than you do Jesus, you need to repent. I got, I got one amen in the room, and it was a half an amen. If you're talking more about vaccines than you're talking about Jesus, you need to repent. Twelve people, I'm never coming back there again. I'm going to go to a vaccine rally instead, right? <laughs> and again, that's stuff we deal with. I get it. I'm not downplaying it's not part of our life. But guys, there's people here. I have a friend in my neighborhood. He's got five Trump flags in the back of his truck. He drives up and down, up and down. He's a worship leader at a church. And I'm like, bro, where's your Jesus flag? You got any Jesus flags? Oh, I never even thought of that. Now that's a problem. Amen. We're gung-ho for some things, and I'm not saying it's wrong to be, you know, we should be politically active, we should do those things. I get it. I'm not downplaying that. But nothing should compare to our passion for Jesus. Nothing. Not even your passion for your grandchildren. Not your passion for your job. Not your passion for your hobbies. Not your passion for your sports teams. No, Jesus is the passion and the priority of our life all day, every day. Amen? And when he is, guess what? Makes me a better husband. Makes me a better father. Makes me a better worker. Gives me wisdom on who to vote for. Gives me wisdom on how to deal with things like we're going through medically right now. All that's the, the, the grace of God. But I'm so tired of Christians. I see them on social media, and they'll talk 47 times about an election. By the way, we kind of got smoked in this election yesterday. A little bit. Guess what? God's still on the throne. He's still the king of kings. He's still on the throne. We still trust him. We still praise him. Don't, didn't change anything about my life. I'm just going to keep preaching Jesus. How about you? See, and we, we got to be careful to not allow anything else to be the priority in our life. As Christians, I, like I said, uh, yeah, I was at the uh, voting yesterday and I saw four or five Christians I knew and they all had Trump uh, masks on. And I had, a, I had a Jesus saves mask on. And they're, and they're asking, well, I've got a Trump man. Dude, no, you need one of these. I don't need that. Amen. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Amen. Seek first the kingdom of God. He did it halfway. Well, let's shoot three arrows. I'm kind of tired. You know what I mean? It's sad. Victory comes during times when your sin becomes so abhorrent to you, so filthy to you, so gross to you, that you feel sick to your stomach as you fall to the ground weeping, knowing that you've done whatever whatever it takes to get the victory. You know, we need to come to a place where we hate our sin so much and we just love God so much and he is the priority and passion of our life. I used to have a t-shirt that said, love God, hate sin. You know what? And as believers, help us to do that. So he does it halfway. God is angered with him because he tells him, the man of God is angered with him. He tells him, but you will only have victory three times. Then Elisha died and they buried him. Now watch this. This point number six down there, or point number, yeah, point number six. Our God is the God of the miraculous. So this guy only shot it three times. It says he's only going to have victory over Syria three times. That's going to come into play in the last couple of verses. Now watch what it says. Then Elisha died and they buried him. And raiding bands from Moab invaded the land in the spring of the year. 
And so it was, as they were burying a man, they suddenly spied a band of raiders. And they put the man in the tomb of Elisha. Now, here's what happened. So they're burying a guy, and they're digging his grave, or they're bur- you know, creating the tomb for him. They're burying him. And then some raiders come into the town, so they don't have anything to do. So they take the body of this man who is dead, and they stick him in Elisha's tomb temporarily so they can deal with, you know, hide from the raiders or whatever, and then come back and get him and finish burying him. But look what happened. Look what it says. They put him in the tomb of Elisha, and when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood to his feet. Now, wait a minute. Elisha's dead. A dead guy touches dead Elisha, and he raises from the dead. Does our God do the miraculous? Amen? What's amazing about this is it just goes to show you how God's hand was on Elisha because when Elisha gave instructions to the, to the king, he should have just obeyed completely because it was so apparent that God was speaking through him and God was using him mightily and just to show how God was using Elisha. Now, here's part of the problem though. We don't see them take, digging Elisha's body up and like, you know, taking pieces of his body and going around touching other dead people right? And God doesn't always do things the same way. Now, this is what happened in in the early church. They believed in relics. You know what relics are? They'd have, oh, here's the the ankle bone of St. Peter. And we're going to carry it around and miracles will happen if we have the ankle bone of St. Peter. Uh, First of all, Peter's in heaven. And do you know that none of that has any power unless the Lord chooses to use it? Amen? And we don't worship saints and we don't pray to saints. I was on the phone with one of my coworkers and I, I was headed out to an appointment and he goes, I said, bro, I'm looking for my keys. He goes, well, you need to pray to St. Anthony. I go, bro, have we met? You know, <laughs> pray to St. Anthony? Well, he's a, he's a saint of lost things. I go, the only people that are lost are the people that believe that. Amen. <laughs> But the reality is that we, we don't, you know, oh, touch this. And oh, here's the, here, they, somebody thought that they claimed they had the skull of John the Baptist and they had it in a, you know, they're carrying, it's so morbid. And the Catholic church was heavy on that kind of stuff. And there are people that would go lay on graves of, of famous people, hoping the Holy Spirit would come into them off of their bones. Stop it. We serve a living God. Amen. These are just temporary tents. When we die, they put, our, they put the tent we were living in in the ground, and we go, we go spend eternity with the Lord. Let's finish up. Notice what it says here, the last point, verse, last four verses. What it says there in verse 22. And Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoaz. But the Lord was gracious to them, had compassion on them, and regarded them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He would not yet destroy them or cast them from his presence. Now Hazael, king of Syria, died. Then Ben-Hadad's son reigned in his place. And Jehoash, son of Jehoah, recaptured from the land of Ben-Hadad and the son of Hazael, the cities which had been taken out of the hand of Jehoaz by, the father, by his father by war. And that's what it says. Look what it says. Three times Joash defeated him and recaptured the cities of Israel. He never completely wiped them out. How many arrows did he shoot out the window? And how many victories did he have? Think there's any chance by that? See, God will, 
God will not force himself upon us, neither at salvation. Look, salvation is offered universally accepted individually. God will draw us. He wants to use us, but he will never force us to be used. You know, we need to have that heart. Here I am, Lord, send me. Lord, I'm available. The greatest ability we can have as believers is availability. The greatest thing we can do is pray every day for divine appointments and watch what the Lord will do in our lives. Guys, we don't want to put our trust in ourselves, our own strength. We don't want to get so caught up in everything else that God takes a back seat, but he needs to be the priority and the passion of our lives. Guys, if we're not fully committed, we will miss out on God's highest. See, God's highest would have been the Syrians would have been wiped out completely and done with. Are there still Syrians today? What's the answer? Okay. Is that still a problem for Israel? This was 2,900 years ago. Here's what happens. When we, don't, when we don't surrender fully to the Lord, we miss out on God's highest. Guys, I want to encourage us all not to stop short of what God wants, us to, wants to do in our lives. Amen? God's got a calling on our lives. God wants to use you for his kingdom and his glory. And by the way, I want to say this too. We need to pray more. And you know what? When you shoot an arrow, you need to take aim and you need, to, you need to hit the open window. Amen? And guess what? When God opens up an opportunity for us, we need to take aim and we need to step through it. And when we pray, we need to take aim when we pray. Guys, when we pray, if we just start praying with nothing in mind, and that's okay, but I think we need to pray fervently. Amen? I think it's good to have a prayer list. I had a prayer journal for years. I need to get another one. And I would write it every day, all my prayers that I prayed. And I would go back and look at them four years later and see all the prayers that God answered. I'd highlight them in yellow. You know, we need to pray without ceasing for this is the will of God. And you know what? When people ask me to pray, I pray on the spot so I don't forget. Because anybody else ever forgot to pray for somebody besides me? I'm the only one confessing that. A bunch of other perfect individuals. Yeah. Someone say, can you pray for me? And the next time you see him, you realize, oh, and then you just pray real quick on the way walking to them so you can tell them, <laughs> right? <laughs> but when, when people come and say, can you pray for me? Let's pray right now. Because yeah. then we don't forget, amen? But I, but I want to encourage us to have set aside time where we spend time in the presence of the Lord. Let's pray for people by name that need Jesus and not give up praying until they get saved. Tonight, I'm going to tell them, Pastor, Pastor Tim and Kathy and, and Tim Moriarty and Tom, another brother, they're at the Need to Breathe concert right now down at the Greek Theater. And my, my boss that I prayed for for 15 years that was a Muslim, and then she ended up getting saved and we baptized her in the ocean, she sent me the tickets. She's walking with Jesus. She sends me Bible verses. She's in love with the Lord. I prayed for her for 15 years. And she sent me the tickets that I was going to go, but I can't go. Why don't you take your wife? I'm like, well, it's Thursday night, so I'm probably not going to make it, but I'll make sure somebody goes. But it, what a blessing. You know what? Aren't you glad people kept praying for you? And there are some people you know that no one's praying for if you don't. Amen? Let's pray and ask God to do miraculous. So I told you what I was going to tell you, and I told you, and I'll tell you what I told you. What kind of example are you leaving for our children and grandchildren to follow? What kind of example are we leaving? God suffers long, but he won't suffer our open rebellion forever. If we walk in disobedience to the Lord and we're getting away with it, God's grace is not God's permission. It matters how we worship, not just who we worship, but how we worship him in spirit and in truth. We must be mindful of whose example we follow. Who are you following after? Who is it that's pouring into your life? Who's discipling you? We, we have uh, free will, 
to do as, uh, as much as we want to participate in God's plan for our lives. We have free will and a choice on how much we want to be involved in God's plan. Our God is a God of the miraculous, and if we're not all in, we'll miss out on God's highest. Lord, we thank you, we praise you, we love you. You are indeed a great and awesome God. Lord, I pray, I know for me, I've been convicted studying this chapter all week. Lord, just to be all in, not kind of in, not, a, not satisfied with a lukewarm walk, but Lord, to walk in the center of your will. Help us, Lord, to be the men and women of God you call us to be. Lord, stir us up. Fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. We know we can't do anything apart from you. May there be less of us and more of you. Be glorified in our lives. Lord, bring revival to the Caneo Valley and start in our hearts first. We pray for this campus, Lord. May kids continue to get saved. I pray for the marriages represented here. May you strengthen and bless them. I pray for people here who have children, uh, prodigal children, Lord, that they would come home and that, Lord, they would, they would come to know you again. May we pray fervently for them. Lord, we pray for divine appointments tomorrow, opportunities to share the hope that lies within us. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen.